invite you to pray. join with me as we pray before we turn to the word today. Our Father, we would pray that the Holy Spirit, who was instrumental in carrying along and leading those who recorded the words of Scripture, who wrote them, we pray that that same Holy Spirit, that you would have your way with us today. We pray that you, as the spirit of truth, that you would knock down in our thinking any false ideas and concepts we have about Jesus Christ. We pray that we might see Christ as he truly is, that we might be properly responding to him today, and that we might, Lord, hear your words, and then so hearing we might be moved to respond in the leading of your Holy Spirit as he applies these words to our own hearts. Lord, these concepts and this passage of your word today is a heavy passage. We pray that we might, Lord, humble ourselves as we listen to it, that we might be taught by it. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. We're reading in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23. And we're going to pick up from where we left off last week, and I'd like to begin reading in verse 13, and we'll read down to verse 32. Matthew chapter 23, beginning in verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men. For you do not enter in yourselves, and nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, even while for a pretense you make long prayers, therefore you shall receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel about on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obligated, you fools and blind men. Which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering upon it, he is obligated, you blind men. Which is more important, the offering on the altar or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, he who swears, swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple, swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And he who swears by heaven, swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier provision of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that, out, so that the outside of it may become clean also. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the, temp the, bu the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Consequently, you bear witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the full measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents and you blood, brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? I begin this morning with a question. What is your view of Jesus Christ? Do you see Jesus through the lens of modern sensibilities as one who never said or did anything that was considered uncharitable or offensive? Do you view Jesus as one who was tolerant of anything and everybody, who spoke only words of affirmation and never words of condemnation, who never confronted but only comforted and consoled? Or do you view Jesus through the lens of the eyewitness accounts of the Scriptures? Along with speaking words of compassion and concern, along with assisting the poor, the needy, the hopeless, the destitute, the biblical Jesus also uttered words of warning and words of condemnation. The biblical Jesus took a stand against spiritual corruption and confronted the corrupt Jewish religious leaders who promoted themselves as reliable spiritual authorities but misused their authority to support injustice by plundering the poor, the vulnerable, and the needy. As our text this morning here in Matthew chapter 23, it is indeed one of the most sobering texts of Scripture. Having concluded Jesus' final public message to the crowd and to his uh, band of disciples, Jesus turned and he now in this passage addresses directly the false teachers and the false shepherds of Israel. Having endured three years of opposition, criticism, false accusations, plots, trick questions designed to destroy his credibility and destroy his ministry, Jesus now assumes the role of a judge who confronts his most severe critics with words of denunciation. Jesus, in this passage, offered a lengthy lament he is, he is grieving and expressing a, a wail, in a sense, of the sadness and loss and the, the reality that he is now using the word woe, not once, twice, four times, seven, seven times he uses woe, woe to you, which indicates that he has completely rejected them. There is no hope for these individuals, it would appear, because it's obvious that they have continued in their final evil religious enterprise they have ignored all the warnings all the teachings that he set forward before them and now they continue in this insistence of operating this enterprise under false pretense 
And having now exposed the corruption of these religious leaders, only two days earlier, when he cleansed the temple and called them out again, saying in public, they've now created a a den of robbers in this huge enterprise of the temple complex, no doubt the comments that he makes here in chapter 23 evoke such anger and animosity and resentment among these Pharisees and scribes that it's no wonder they insisted that he be put to death unjustly by crucifixion only two days later. So as we look at this text, I, rather than look at the specifics and getting into all the details of Jesus' indictment he brings against them, I want us to draw attention now to three insights into Jesus himself, the one who spoke these words and what he was actually doing on this occasion as the righteous judge. And so my first point I'd like you to consider with me this morning is, as a righteous judge, Jesus alone is qualified to execute divine justice. In his classic book, I trust many of you have read, or you hope you will read sometime in your life, J.I. Packer wrote, Knowing God. He included in that book a chapter with the title of God as Judge. And in this chapter, he set forth several texts of Scripture which mention Jesus is also considered to be judge, because obviously as God, he uh, is clearly qualified to do so. And he quotes John 5, several passages in that particular portion of Scripture, where we read this. God the Father has committed all judgment unto the Son. The Father has given Jesus authority to execute judgment. And he also records Acts chapter 10, we learn that Jesus has been designated by God as judge of the living and the dead. And so Packer then, having established that clear teaching of Scripture, then goes on to to think through the ramifications or what are the implications about this premise that Jesus is the judge of all the earth. And he goes on to say then several things that must be true of Jesus serving as a judge. First of all, a judge must be a person with authority. A person with authority. And since he created all things, Jesus clearly has the right to establish laws of the world that he has uh, created. And he has the right to reward those who keep those laws. He also has the right to punish those who disobey those laws. And when Jesus was speaking in this, on this occasion in chapter 23 of Matthew, In that temple complex, he was speaking with absolute authority to those false teachers, to the false shepherds of Israel in that first century context. And when he confronted them regarding their public and private behavior, he did not overstep his bounds. What he spoke in this passage of Scripture, clearly he was entitled and had the right and authority to do. He is the judge of all the earth, and we find that explored further in Matthew's Gospel. If you continue reading beyond chapter 23, you get to chapter 25, we read that Jesus is presented as the judge of all the nations. And so there's no question Jesus is qualified because he has absolute authority. But secondly, Packer reminds us that a judge must be a person who is identified with what is good and right. Good and right. Jesus is fair. He cannot be bribed. He will never fail to do what is right. 
If Jesus had seen this situation and he had ignored the corruption that was taking place in that temple complex at the highest levels of their spiritual leadership among the Pharisees and scribes, he would have been disqualified to serve as judge. You see, indifference to evil would be a serious moral flaw that would disqualify someone to serve as judge. And so Exodus, of course, affirms that God himself who is judge, that he will by no means in chapter 34 and also chapter 23, Exodus 34 and chapter 23, God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Also we know that he will not acquit the guilty, Scripture says. It is impossible for God to turn a blind eye to injustice and wickedness. Jesus hates all form of sin, he hates all form of injustice, and he loves all that is holy and just. His holy wrath is directed at everything that is contrary to his holy nature. Now Jesus, during his public ministry, did not mete out complete justice during that period of time. But he endured many things that were done unjustly. But my friends, one day he will bring about justice. And it says in Psalm 62, verse 12, that you, Lord, render to each one according to his work. That day will come. But Jesus, we know, is one who is qualified as a person who is good, a person who is right. I find that an interesting and significant point here today because many people find fault with Jesus for saying such direct words that really uh, seem to be that which was overstepping the bounds. I'm just trying to show here he was speaking forth that which is appropriate in light of the fact that he was good and right in his heart. Thirdly, a judge must be a person of wisdom who is able to discern the truth. Able to discern the truth. Jesus is a searcher of hearts. He knows everything about you and everything about me, everything about all of us. And no one can evade his knowledge. We may be able to fool a lot of people for a lot of the, our lives. And apparently that's what these Pharisees and scribes had been quite successfully able to do. They were, again, commended and looked up to by the vast majority of people in their day. And here is Jesus seeing through all the phoniness, and he therefore speaks as one who is a judge who cannot be fooled. He knows truth. He's able to discern the truth about who they really were and what they were about. And just judgment is always based on truth. All the secrets of men will someday be judged. And Jesus sees through all of the pretension, the hypocrisy, and lies in whoever it is, whether it's someone that's an elevated position of authority and respect among their peers, or someone who's a, a criminal and person has been proven to be uh, corrupt and therefore has been punished. Look at verses 25 to 28, where we notice in the text here that Jesus accurately discerned beyond the mere outward appearances of these individuals. He looked beyond the externals. He rendered an accurate assessment of the hearts of those scribes and Pharisees, See, he said, on the inside, they are inwardly full of hypocrisy and lawlessness, verse 28. It's a reminder again, isn't it, of the verse in 1 Samuel, verse 16, that says, 
Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Here is Jesus looking beyond all of the uh, impressive uh, look, uh, particularly if you look at the previous passages there, the first part of chapter 23, they talked about wearing these garments and these clothes and all this stuff was such an impressive appearance that they had. It's a reminder again that every age has people who enjoy hiding behind a facade. For some, it's hiding behind a facade of being a churchgoer, a church attender. All the while, they look as if they are very serious about being committed to the teaching of Scripture, and yet in their real lives, in the day-to-day lives, they conduct their business in a dishonest fashion. Or they might be a person who nurtures a covetous heart or a lust-filled heart. Or they may be a person who treats uh, the members of their family in a harsh or abusive manner. But Jesus one day is going to pull back the veil and reveal the real individual, the real real truth about all of us. And, And no more will pretense and fraud be committed in His presence. No one will successfully deceive Jesus Christ. On that final day, some people will greet Jesus with very respectful words. Lord, Lord. And they will insist when they greet Jesus of the number of things that they did that were impressive feats for Christ in various forms of service that they rendered. And Jesus will respond to those who are not honest and truthful, who have not been without pretension, and He will respond to their misrepresentation of themselves with the truth and will say, I never knew you. Depart from me. Not you who do such impressive things. He'll say, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. He sees through pretension. He sees through fraudulent uh, phoniness. Therefore, he is one who indeed is qualified to discern the truth. Uh, Fourthly, J.I. Packer reminds us that a judge must be a person of power who is able to execute the sentence. Now, I don't want to expand on this too long, but it's pretty obvious if you continue reading the account in Matthew's Gospel, two days later, after this confrontation took place, Jesus appeared to be helpless, weak, unable to fend for himself, because he was, as you know, put to death by way of crucifixion by the Romans. But we know from Scripture that Jesus had the option available to him. Even though he looked weak, he had available to him the option of calling 12 legions of angels to defend him, to protect him. Chapter 26 of Matthew. And yet, Jesus willingly and voluntarily chose to lay down his life. John 10 says, I'm the sheep, the good, I mean, the shepherd that lays down his life voluntarily for the sheep. My friend, that's not going to be the continued pattern of Jesus because we look at Revelation chapter 19, we read that one day, one day Jesus, who is called faithful and true, will in righteousness judge and wage war. And so His judgment will come forward. He will indeed execute the sentence someday that must be executed. He is indeed qualified to execute divine justice. If nothing else in this text, let us see Jesus 
is clearly one who is qualified to judge. Secondly, I'd like to point out as we read through this very sobering text that as a righteous judge, Jesus holds the false teachers and every false shepherd accountable. Each person is indeed accountable to Jesus Christ, the judge, for their deeds. Romans 14 says that each one of us will give account of himself to God. According to James 3, that even more sobering and more important for people like me to read, that anyone who serves in an official position of spiritual leadership, such as a teacher or preacher, will face a more severe judgment before Jesus Christ because these individuals exert tremendous influence for good or for ill. And they will be held to a very high standard indeed. And one of the concerns that Jesus expressed when he confronted the scribes and Pharisees was, letter A, the negative impact that they were making on other people. He was concerned that that those who were in these positions of authority and positions of spiritual leadership, they were having a tremendous influence on those students that were listening to them, on people who were looking at what they taught and listened, watched how they, they were conducting themselves. And along with noting a number of the ways that they compromised God's standard in their conduct and conversations, notice when it says in verse 13, Jesus' emphasis on the seriousness of how they are hindering, blocking the door from people to escape what they're currently involved in and to actually make their way into the kingdom of heaven. It is one thing to believe false doctrine. But my friend, it is a far worse offense if you actively teach error and detour other people who were considering or weighing the words and claims of Jesus Christ and considering being a follower of Christ, if you're a person that hinders them from moving forward toward Christ, beware. Beware indeed. It's no wonder that Jesus speaks in verses 16 and verses 24. He speaks of them as blind guides. Who would want to follow a blind guide? Because guides, by virtue of who they are, they are leading others. And these spiritual leaders, these phony religious leaders, false shepherds of Israel, were indeed leading many people behind them, and they were going to fall into a spiritual disaster, and they're going to lead a bunch of people right behind them into spiritual disaster. They corrupt their converts. Verse 15. The indictments are so serious. I'll tell you one thing, as I've thought about this text, I would not want to be in the shoes of some seminary professors who have received salaries for years and years and years, made possible by denominational donations of people in the pew who have helped to support various denominational seminaries, and yet these seminary professors have undermined the authority and the inerrancy of Scripture. They have undermined the deity of Jesus Christ in their seminary classroom, and they have therefore encouraged and promoted a bunch of students who have then graduated from those particular seminaries and have gone out to propagate such a compromised views of Scripture and Jesus Christ and have led people under their teaching into falsehood, into error, 
and into, indeed, damnation. We can be sure that Jesus will hold all such false teachers accountable for their harmful influence. And that's what he's doing in this text, my friend. He is doing just that. But will you notice he didn't just have a concern over the horizontal impact and influence that these false teachers were having. Would you also notice in the text that he's holding these false prophets accountable because of the negative impact of their ministry having on God's reputation himself? Despite the impressive credentials of these individuals who saw themselves and presented themselves as the authorized interpreters of the law of Moses. Because you said earlier in chapter 23, they sit right right there in the seat of Moses. They saw themselves as being authorized teachers. But would you notice carefully, as Jesus exposes them for who they are, that as teachers like that, they are unreliable. They regularly broke solemn oaths. Would you look at how many verses? Verses 16 to 22. He devotes all those verses of challenge and correction to them because here they are making vows and oaths, saying you can trust me on this, all the while they've got their fingers crossed behind their back and they know full well they're not going to keep that promise because they've only worded it a certain way, but they give the impression that they're making this big uh, impressive promise which they know full well they're not going to keep as representatives indeed of God, these false spiritual leaders had invented a complicated way of oath-making that permitted them to lie with impunity. And may I say to you that as a representative of God's truth, they themselves were untruthful. They also put on a front to convince people that they were somehow imitating the graciousness and goodness and compassion of God. And so they, gave, they presented themselves as being people who were indeed concerned about other people and generous at times. But in reality, look at verse 25, they are full of robbery. They were stealing money. They were taking advantage of all these poor people who were coming in there, extracting from them exorbitant fees and exchange rate, raking in the money to help themselves, and they were doing so to indulge themselves. All big phony baloney. And the private conduct of these pseudo-shepherds inaccurately portrayed God. God is not a person who takes of the weak and the poor and extracts from them for his own benefit to ruin their lives. That is a, a horrible concept of God to portray. And my friend, we can be sure. We can be sure that every wolf who wears a sheep's costume in order to deceive the vulnerable and take advantage of those folks for selfish reasons will receive a higher judgment. You can bank on it. Jesus does not turn his back in calling a spade a spade. I think of this principle when I realize that in our own time we've read of people who have conducted themselves as people who have authority, who are authorized to act on behalf of our society, and who have abused that authority, and how that reflects poorly on those who don't misuse that authority. Recently, as you know, there's been a scandal unfolding in the New York City Police Department, and the commissioner, Raymond Kelly, was quoted after that announcement was made, 
He said this is a difficult thing to have to announce. He said these misdeeds tarnish the good name and reputation of the vast majority of police officers who perform their duties honestly. It reminds me of another account I read recently which made me indeed sick to my stomach and outraged to read of a judge in the state of Pennsylvania, maybe you heard about this, who was recently sentenced to 28 years in prison because he was involved in juvenile court. We're talking about kids who were 14, 15, 16 years of old. They would appear before this judge. This judge would say, he would listen to the case before them. He'd say, you're guilty. You're going to sentence to this particular correction facility. You're guilty. You're going to go to the same facility. You're guilty. You're going to go to the same facility. Come to find out he was receiving a million-dollar bribe from the people who were who were operating that correctional facility, and he was getting kickbacks for every person he sent in there, he would get money for sending them in there. 14, 15-year-old, 16-year-old kids' lives being destroyed. You don't think these people need to be held accountable? Indeed, Jesus is speaking the truth. Why? Because God himself was being misrepresented. And beware to anybody who stands on behalf of God and takes his word and misuses it in such a way that they fleece the sheep around them only to benefit themselves and to destroy the work of God. Now I want to move along here because these are heavy things. I know these are kinds of concepts we don't like to dwell on, but they are important and they're necessary and we need to affirm them because this is who Jesus really is. The third point and a very important point is that Jesus as righteous judge justly condemns, but he also graciously forgives. Here in this text in chapter 23, not one of the scribes and Pharisees who were addressed in this text could truthfully claim that they did not deserve to be condemned. Not one of them could stand up and say, wait, wait, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You got the wrong person here. You, you've exaggerated a little bit here. You, you, you've not got it straight here. No, there's nothing. The specificity of what he points out here, the length of the indictments that he brings, makes it very clear. He's not making and trumping up charges here. They have been exposed as to who they really are. Indeed, as a righteous judge, Jesus listed specific infractions that these false shepherds had committed even as a sort of a pattern of life. It's been going on for years and years and years and years. Sins of omission. They had neglected to do the things they should have been doing. And the sins of commission. They did things they shouldn't have been doing. They had neglected the weightier matters of the law, like justice, ethics, and humility before God, verses 23 and 24. And instead of doing the things they should have done, they placed great emphasis on trivial little matters. They're sitting there weighing out tiny pieces of seeds and, and spices that they grew in their gardens at home that they use in their food. They're counting out tithing of these little tiny pieces. Meanwhile, Jesus says, you're swallowing camels. You're committing horrendous acts of injustice. And yet here you are taking your time in these tiny little trivial matters out of no importance, really. It's not a bad thing to do. Just totally missing to do the most important things. Here they are guilty of expending their great energy and effort to maintain their outward appearance, their uprightness, keeping their all sorts of scores of man-made rules, and yet they lack love for God, they lack love for their fellow man. 
Their hearts were full of defilement and rottenness. Verses 27-28. And despite their claims of support for God's prophets, they were only days away from doing what? <laughs> Here they are saying, oh, we never would have stood and tried to bring about, you know, the killing of a prophet. I mean, you know, we... We're in, the, we're in the shoes, of, we're in the long line of people who have always respected the prophets. Here is the greatest prophet of all, Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, standing before them, and they are going to take their strongest stand and insist that he be put to death by way of crucifixion, the most in, unjust act that's ever been committed in our world. All the while saying, oh no, we would never have done anything like that. Uh-uh. You see, by citing the specific sins, Jesus helped them understand why Verse 33, they deserve to be sentenced to hell. Let me turn and go around the corner here, my friends. Having made that statement, I want to say this. And you better hear me, please hear me on this. Not one of the sins that Jesus mentioned in all this long list of sins that he indicted these spiritual leaders, not one of them was unforgivable. Hypocrisy? Pride, lying, greed, robbery, hindering others from injuring the kingdom of heaven. They are sins which are able to be atoned for by the sinless Son of God who died on the cross and rose from the dead. As a matter of fact, Jesus called a self-righteous Pharisee, someone who also was a corrupt spiritual leader, he called him by name, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? He calls him out on what he's guilty of doing. He brings an indictment to him. He lists an offense before a holy God. And so works powerfully in this man's life that he changes the proud heart of Saul, the Pharisee, and he turns it into a humble heart of Paul, the lowly missionary. And here is Paul years later looking back on that dramatic transformation of taking him from being a Pharisee to a person who is now suffering for the cause of Christ to build the church of Jesus Christ. And he's now boasting of the abundant grace that Jesus Christ had shown him. I urge you to read again afresh anew 1 Timothy chapter 1, the testimony of Paul, that he said despite the fact that he had impressive outward piety as a Pharisee, and boy did he have the impressive list of credentials. He was the most impressive of them all. He looks at himself and realizes that because of the indictment that Christ brought to him and confronted him in, on his way to do further destruction and damage to the church of Jesus Christ and the followers of Christ, after being confronted with the truth, God caused him to realize that he see now saw himself as the worst, the worst of all the sinners of the world. Paul's awareness of his specific sins, his blasphemy, his violence, his abuse that he showed to Christians led him to celebrate anew and afresh the patience of God, the mercy that God had demonstrated to him, the most undeserving of all. And Paul, the regenerated religious leader, was forgiven. He was transformed by the sinless Savior who tried to then prevent others from following Jesus. See, Paul was, Saul the Pharisee was trying to keep people from following Jesus. He was trying to put to death anybody who would publicly stand for Christ, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. 
He's doing what he could to he keep hindering. And look at the grace of Christ. Taking a man who had done all these things and transforming his heart. Transforming his passion so that he now wanted to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here is Jesus, the just judge, has died for the sins of people like you and me. People who have an indictment, a long list of ways that we have offended a holy and righteous God. And yet Jesus Christ died for our sins. He was raised for our justification. He is seated at the highest position of authority, and He ever leaves, lives to make intercession for those whom He has saved. And no one can successfully accuse Paul, the former Pharisee. No one can ever accuse a follower of Jesus Christ who has come and repented and believed upon Him. Nobody can, and who sincerely and earnestly does follow Him, no one can accuse that person, that the one that God has declared righteous will ever be condemned. That's what Romans 8 says, my friend. That's why Paul is, is, is celebrating the wonders of who he is in Jesus Christ and the glories of the gospel. And that is this, that Jesus, the just judge, is the justifier of the ungodly. So, my friends, I hope you'll see that Jesus, when he spoke these words, he did so with a heart of love and compassion. He spoke the truth and then died for the sinners that he indicted. Let's pray. Oh, merciful and gracious God, surely all of us would hate to have a, a list of our sins publicly read in a large room like this with lots of people present in it. I know, Lord, I would never want to have you even start for three minutes on a long 16-year recitation of all the ways in which I've broken your laws exposing me for who I am, listing all the various ways of I have sinned in mind and in speech, in action, and also omitting to do so many things I should be doing and intend to do but never do. Lord, I don't think any of us would want to be in that situation. And so we thank you that you have given us your word Thank you that we have the Holy Spirit who convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, of unbelief. And Father, I pray that he might have his way today. If there is a proud heart here, Lord, who has a public image that looks fairly respectable, fairly impressive on, in terms of most people, an upright type of person, I pray, Lord, Lord, that you would use your word and help that individual and whoever else might be to realize they can't be pretentious before you. It's not going to hold any kind of weight before you because, Lord, you see all of us. You see us as we truly are. But Lord, I thank you that your word teaches us that you love us. Even as sinners, you loved us enough to send Christ to die for us, to be raised for our justification. Thank you, Father, that in speaking the truth and confronting us in our sin, you also point us to the hope of Christ. And I pray today that you might, Lord, fill us with joy in knowing that there is forgiveness for self-righteous people like us. 
We thank you, Lord, that Saul, the Pharisee, himself could be changed and forgiven and restored and justified and that you would, Lord, work in his heart to transform him from being a self-righteous person to a person who exalted and glorified and gave great honor and praise to the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed him by faith. So, Father, we pray that you might help us all today to find our delight in the good news of the gospel. Help us, we pray, to embrace Christ, to treasure him, to trust in him alone, to find in Christ that we can have the weight of our sins transferred from us onto Christ and that we can be adopted as your children by faith and that we can enjoy the privileges and blessings that come with the gospel. And Lord, that we might worship you. You are the just judge and you are the justifier of the ungodly. Lord, we give you praise. We exalt you, Lord Jesus Christ. We humble ourselves before you. We admit that you are qualified to be the judge of all. And we are amazed that you offer justification through your own death, that you would bear upon yourself our punishment, that we might justly be declared forgiven. We give you praise and we bless you. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.